Shut up and sit down. Good evening, guys. This is episode two of the Federation Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I guess today I'm going to talk about a very real situation for me, something that's been going on in the company I've been involved in. It's called Cloud Cove. So we've been recently talking to a development partner, right? So a lot of times when you're an entrepreneur, you want to start a business, you may not necessarily have the technical skills to make things happen or the infrastructure to make things happen. So you need to find a way to either get partners that have that infrastructure or set up a team of people that you can trust to work with, together with you, to make things happen. And what I've seen happen a lot is that entrepreneurs tend to really love their vision and believe that it's the next biggest thing in the world. But oftentimes, they're not. If you're working with development partners, they don't necessarily share the same view. right? So let me give you an example. As an entrepreneur, you need to get technical skills in and you let's say you come across this development house, right? It's quite famous, you know, the people there, they are very experienced in the space. And you start to talk to them and you offer them equity in return for developing something for you. Now, oftentimes than not, what will happen is that the development house will start to ask for a salary instead or ask for a development fee, Right? That's where you have to be really sharp and you have to really think about whether or not that is the right partner for you at a point of time. Why? It's because a lot of times people assume that the development partner sees things the same way as the entrepreneur does. That is not true. It's happened to me many times. It's happened to people I've worked with many times on projects that I've done. Okay, <clears throat> These entrepreneurs have this great vision. Right, they can't execute it. They work with this development house and they ask the development house, hey, could you do this for me and I'll give you 25% of equity? What usually comes back is the development house will say, hey man, um, yeah, 25% is great, but I need to get paid in order to get this thing done. You know? And then the entrepreneur, if they are a good negotiator, will try to negotiate with these development houses, try and push things forward and whatnot. And the end, what usually happens is that uh, the deal goes through in a sort of bastardized version, a mix of payment and a mix of equity. And then the entrepreneur would then assume that this development house has taken ownership of the project. Right? They think that, you know, this this development house is going to be their development partner, they're gonna come in, they're gonna create the thing, they're gonna have the same amount of involvement as the entrepreneur does. That is wrong. That is wrong. That's a mistake. Because the development house, more likely than not, does not truly believe in, a, believe in the vision and does not truly, truly want to embark on the journey with you. Usually that's the case. And what happens is that people get caught up, right? They, they like to believe in what they like to believe in. And as a result, they, they don't see the reality of the situation as much or as clearly because, you know, oftentimes after spending too much time talking to a development partner, after getting some quick MVPs done, you know, the cost of switching to another partner or to restart that, that journey all over again is quite daunting. And what usually happens is that, um, you know, they don't want to do that, right? So then they have selective hearing, selective viewing, 
and then all they do is just see how that this development partner is a great partner and are so experienced and everyone should listen to them. But what happens usually in the end is that this development partner has seen this project only as a development uh, cost sort of a thing. And as a result, it'll end up in conflict, you know, there will be mismatched expectations and there'll be issues involved. So I guess, especially in the founding stage, the members of the team, when you're selling it on vision, have to truly buy in into the vision, into the faith of what the organization can do, into the faith of the plans for the future, as well as in the faith of the main founders. That's really important. If not, if you can feel or you can see that the development partners are starting to feel a bit, hey, you know, they're starting to, to hesitate a bit more, they're starting to ask for more fees, they're starting to respond slowly. These little actions are very important in identifying whether or not someone truly is in love with your vision or not. Oftentimes it's about, see, it's like thinking about whether or not a girl is in love with you. It's the same thing. Is that person thinking about this project 24-7? Is the person really involved? Does the person take the initiative? Does that company uh, dedicate full resources? Does it spare no expense? Does it go the distance? Because entrepreneurship is a full contact spot. You can't just la 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 la. And if you go la 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 la, then you know that it's not that right. And you would rather take a step back, you know, reconfigure the relationship. Or you would be in for a lot, a lot of pain. That's what I realized. Same for co-founders. You know, a lot of times the initiative will be, will be driven by a main founder who has the vision. You have to make sure that the rest of your team has the same vision with you or you must be ready to find people who truly care. Because if you don't, <clears throat> same issue. So this happened to, to us once uh, in a previous company that I started, obviously. And we had a development partner that we, that we felt we could eventually you know, work with and acquire and, and, and join the company on a, on a full-time basis to lead us, technically speaking, uh, forward. But what happened eventually was that they, you know, they kept things very clear. They kept things very, um, you know, when it's just a, a development project, you can't expect the other team to go the distance for you. It's just not fair, you know, and, and you need to modulate your expectations that way, right? So now that you know if that's the case, then you could work with them and... and not be disappointed and not have too much faith, right? Because you not only waste your faith and your energy and your hope and expectations, but you waste time, you waste money. So it's best to be clear on a very, very uh, contractual basis, you know, what needs to be done, by whom, when, and what the specifications are, how they're going to do it. And then from there, you move forward. In order to have this, you need to make sure that one of your co-founders is a truly technical person so that they can opine on the technical project. Right, be be this in in technology or be this in F and B or whatnot. It's the same thing, right? And once once you get this going, and then you'll be able to avoid a lot of pain and a lot of mismatched expectations, lah, so to speak. So yeah, that's just uh, another tidbit for me on 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 what has happened before and what might be happening in the future for many of you guys. Another thing you need to know as as founders is that. You need to know what you're truly willing to do and what you're not willing to do. <clears throat> Everyone assumes that founders, you know, should just go the entire distance and be able to be Superman, do everything, but that's just not realistic. 
You know, and a lot of founders put their expectation on themselves, including me. I put an expectation on myself all the time and I fail miserably. The key is to find the right people to work with you with the right mix of abilities. And if you can't find them, you can hire them or you could rejig the way you intend to build your product. That is usually an alternative way that can be done, you know, and you need to be open to that. You cannot fall in love too much with the end vision for a, a, a product or a company. At least that's what I used to do. I used to fall in love with the end, with the end vision and wouldn't accept any deviations along the way. But I guess that's just a mistake because no business plan survives first contact with the customer in the market. It's the same thing. You know, a lot of times people say, hey, you know what, you could go and outsource this, outsource that, outsource the entire company. But oftentimes when it's just starting, it is best to be able to have a self-sustaining ecosystem. Even if it's smaller, it's fine, right? But at least you have a self-sustaining ecosystem of people who can develop a minimum viable product, who have the vision to go out and the ability to talk to customers. So you have a little bit of sales ability, a little bit of development ability, and a, and a little bit of vision. Just having these three factors in together, and I think rolling that around properly, that would lead to a lot more success than not, in my view. At least that's what I've realized. Uh, at least those companies can get things going. If not, you end up you know, with, with a misfit, you know, with people disagreeing, having arguments, or just fear expectations either way. The good thing is that as long as you have a development uh, uh, capability, then you can outsource for at least tech ICT products. You can go online. You can go to Upworks. You know, you can get a developer overseas to work with you and then you can see how how you create your MVP, basically. So yeah, it's not as easy as most people think and I think that it's just something that we need to really keep in mind, especially if, the, if people get caught in the hubris you know, of thinking that this is like Silicon Valley, you can just walk out the street and raise 5 mil, 500k. Nah, it is not that simple. It really isn't. Additionally, I'd like to share with you one of the, the biggest learnings I've had in recent times about entrepreneurship. So the current partner of the company that, that, <clears throat> that I'm founding, right? He said, you know, Fred, business is all about the approach. How do you approach you know, the client, how do you approach your solutions? How do you approach, you know, the problem? And and I found that to be true. You need to have a certain degree of flexibility, a certain degree of being creative. A lot of times people don't realize how creative you can be, me included, of course, because being creative is quite scary. Like, you know, you've come up with some crazy idea, you don't know whether it'll work, and every second, every moment when you're executing that creative idea, you're, you're faced with failure, right? Like, that great idea that you had, nah, it's a piece of shit. Uh-huh. The market doesn't give a fuck. And it's the same. You know, it's the same for, for anything you want to do, any new creative endeavor. And it's about the approach. How do you convince people to take your product? In what way? What can you give them? How do you negotiate your way through could you sacrifice certain short-term goals for long-term goals? Could you develop something for them for free later on only to monetize on it? <clears throat> understanding this and understanding creative business models are very, very important, especially in, in, in today's day and age where coming up with new and innovative solutions requires this this, this, this real understanding. is something that I've just, you know, truly started thinking about, especially in, in, in my journey as well and how, how we could make Cloud Cove 
um, the Uber for e-commerce, or I would say the main IoT uh, platform for e-commerce. You know, it has to do with with us understanding how we could easily enter uh, our markets to get data. You know, to create test products for for our corporate customers to be able to get their credibility, their trust. You know, so so there are already certain structures to each and every kind of client that you have. And these principles don't change, you know. These attitudes don't change. Corporate customers like credibility, you know, they like stability, they like big projects, they have to justify, they're going to be slow when they respond to you because there are like 10 different, you know, <laughs> levels for them to, to work with, right? Whereas if you're just creating a consumer product, then could you go on Kickstarter? How are you going to go on Kickstarter? You know, who are your development partners in China or Vietnam or wherever you're developing a product? All these things have been done before and I think doing some research on how others have done it, have done these things as well as uh, how the traits of these markets really look like, I think those things are really smart things to do and, and that's what we've, we've been doing and we've been trying to do and I feel that that's one way forward. Um, given the fact that at the same time also there's also been a lot of overthinking, like this is my main flaw, I overthink everything a lot. You know, I sit around and I have like these 20,000 different ideas about how something could work, but I don't go and execute on them. That's sort of a killer because the more you think, the more you get paralyzed. You know, there's this phrase that I always hear my mentors tell me. They say paralysis by analysis. (laughs) Yeah, so that's what I do. I think a lot of times when we are just starting to to found our companies, we tend to do as well. It's human nature to want to plan, to have control, but ultimately, in the end, having a rough enough uh, first step, you know, maybe two, three weeks uh, view of what you need to do, what you need to build, and your first product, or the first cut of your services, that would likely be enough to go to market. And once you go to market, you'll be able to, to get some feedback. You know, I, I've spent too much of my time in the past trying to create too many solutions to try to build everything into one main product before releasing but I guess that's just not really going to work a lot of times people talk about it in the lean uh, startups uh, series or, or even in Steve Blank's work but oftentimes coming from me really it's about fear like fear that what you have is not good enough fear that the market is not able to, to, to take what you have but the truth is this I realize people who really want your solution will find a way to buy your product. Okay? It's all about making sure that there are these uh, group of super intense, super, 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 super strong believers in your product and your vision. And these guys will always, always patronize and always buy your stuff. So if there's no group of people like that, then you might want to go back to the drawing board and board again and think about things. Because... More often than not, uh, a lot of times people like to pick the low-hanging fruit. The problem is, if it's low-hanging fruit, everybody thinks about picking low-hanging fruit first. You see what I mean? And because everyone thinks of picking low-hanging fruit, the competition there is higher, you know, services provider is higher, the competition is more often than not more difficult than just trying to focus on this really narrow niche thing that you truly believe in. At least that's what I feel and that's coming from me. You know, I don't know, there are obviously flip sides to this where, yeah, such a small, narrow product, you know, that's not going to be 
any users, it's not a large enough market and whatnot. So I've not really moved on beyond that to get like mass design for any product. So I don't know whether whether this this theory is true, but I do know trying to build everything fails. <laughs> so I'm trying out this uh, you know, let's let's build as we go kind of a model and let's see whether that works uh, or not. Another thing I realize is that a lot of times people assume that what comes from Silicon Valley is the world. You know, that's simply not true. What's been happening in the Valley is in many ways a leading indicator of what could happen in different parts of the world, but localizing uh, products and localizing and understanding the local markets are very important as well. And being able to see uh, the trends in those areas are very, very important, especially in Southeast Asia, right? Like a lot of times people will say, hey, you know what, Singapore's too small a market. You know, fuck Singapore, let's see if you can go to, you know, Indonesia instead or whatnot. And the thing is, like, most most people think that you can just take something from the valley and just implement it here. Uh, that's usually not true. Yeah, for, for some ideas and some cases, some universal human principles, that's true. Lah. But then I've come to realize that taking a model and just directly applying it locally, you know, is usually not as easy as it seems. So how, how did I understand this was because I worked for a market entry and technological consulting company. What they, what they do is that they take care of uh, old world companies and then <clears throat> try to digitize them, prepare them for the future, right? As well as conduct market entry activities into Southeast Asia, Korea, and Finland and whatnot. So through my little experience there, I was there for only for a short while, I realized that taking concepts from just, you know, wholesale from the valley and trying to implement them usually is not so easy. And if it is an easy implementation, right, then you can bet your money that someone else will have thought of it. And if someone else will have thought of it and they're either very busy raising a big monster round to tackle the market or they've already started and you usually, you know, don't really stand a very strong chance unless you have access to, to strong capital markets, you know, you, you get access to VCs or you have a strong backing of funding. Usually it's not so easy. So, you know, I've come to realize that trying to start up is more tough than it seems. And we just need to keep grinding and we need to keep finding the right entry point and the right perspective to have. Usually having a local view is, is a great advantage. You know, you just need to look at how Grab has lost, I mean, sorry, Uber has lost in almost every other international market that they've been in other than the United States. And you look at how Grab is working very well in Southeast Asia, how Didi uh, Chusing is doing really well in China. And it's just the same thing, you know, people have very minute differences and in a world like ICT, these minute preferences can lead to a very, very large gain because it's a winner-takes-all market, right? The, the number two usually doesn't do as well or does comparatively a lot less. You know, and you need to think about also how those big companies, right, Amazon and, how, and whatnot, and how they're going to try to enter different markets, you know, the same way they enter the United States, would it work? You know, the cost to them is, is really high. Yeah, granted that they have access to almost unlimited capital, you also need to think about the local partnerships in place. You need to think about the local uh, uh, barriers to entry. You know, you need to think about the local uh, attitude as well towards buying. You know, what I've learned recently, very interesting, was that the market of Switzerland, right, in the market of Switzerland, mobile penetration rates are not as high as the rest of the world. Why? Because they've always had very strong broadband access and they're more used to using their computers to buy things than mobile, whereas the trend in the rest of the world has been mobile. 
you know we were talking to one of our partners uh, uh, in Switzerland so they are a leading e-commerce company there they do 550 million francs a year business and they tell us look guys you know yeah I understand mobile works in the rest of the world but for Switzerland it's still it's still web it's still on desktop and I went online and I went to take a look at the statistics and usage cases and it's true so you know sometimes we can't take uh, wholesale ideas and be able to translate them directly to a localized market you need to really understand truly who your end user is and really know their business you need to know what your customers challenges are what their problems are in many ways you need to be able to empathize and step into the into the seats of all your different customers if it's a platform play you need to know you know your corporate customers you need to know your end users you need to be able to see that what you have can can bridge things across you know um so that's that's what I've realized lah in, in the course very very recently that sometimes more often than not people have this warped view that these large companies can just take whatever they've done uh, and and enter you know use use those concepts and enter markets the same way it, it simply isn't true and that the world is a lot of a larger place than it seems yeah all you need to do is you go and take a look at the statistics of e-commerce vis-a-vis uh, retail in general, you realize that e-commerce is only about, what, 20% of, of the volume of the entire real world's retail. So you've you got to realize that, technically speaking, there's a lot of news going on. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of hype in certain spaces and certain industries, but you need to look at the real numbers to take a look at how big your market really is. I'm not saying that the market can't grow, right? you got to take that in, in, into account as well. But as for current market size and as for current... Uh, market development, you need to keep in mind that there are oftentimes more than not, um, you know, the media tends to hype certain things up. Yeah, so that's just my own real real understanding in this space and and my own experience. Like, I, hope, I hope this can be helpful and it's something to remind myself as well, you know. And the last thing I would like to share with you guys is something that's very real something that I've struggled with a lot. So remember in the, in, the, in the last episode, I talked about patience, right? And how I would usually run too fast and try too hard. So this is something really deep. Like, it means a lot to me. Lah. And I've made a lot of mistakes uh, around this area. And it has to do with, with equity and expectation in the company. You know? So more often than not, when I want to try to create a product, product or a project, I would usually try to find my way to the best vehicle for my ideas and best vehicle for my abilities. More often than not, the infrastructure is not available when you just start out on your own, right? You need to plug yourself into a wider ecosystem, work with other partners who more often times than not have more experience than you. They are more relative power than you. They have more um, insight. They are a lot wiser in the world, right? They might be older, usually are, richer, usually are. And and then you've got to manage those relationships, you know. Because if you start something yourself, then you've got another set of challenges. So for me, I'm not sure. I'm trying to do both at once, right? One with the coding tuition, the other one with uh, this other company that I'm involved in, Cloud Cove. So the people I'm involved in with Cloud Cove, they are quite senior. They've been country heads of big MNCs before. They have very strong relationships with big companies, you know, huge corporates. And I would like to use Cloudcove as a vehicle for me to be able to put out my ideas and put out my insights, which I believe can happen in the real world after understanding the space, of course. 
And the thing is, oftentimes, you get stressed because you wonder, hey, you know what? I'm thinking of all these ideas. You know, could I get a large part of equity? You know, what is mine? What's not mine? It's the same thing with the previous startup that I did. You know, there, there were this talk. Yeah, you call yourself a co-founder, but are you really the co-founder? Is the power really you know, in your hands, could you just come in and say, hey, no, I want to change all this shit, I want to fire this guy, I want to raise money from this side. Could you do that? Are you really the founder of the company? That's the question, right? And I think that the answer is both yes and no. You know, you've got to understand uh, where you stand in the space, right? For me, I'm very clear that having this vehicle allows me to, to create products that reach markets that I myself could never, ever have done which markets with different languages that I wouldn't even be able to speak. German, for example, in the Switzerland market, right? Bahasa in, in the Indonesian market, Korean in the Korean market, right? And and the market size does changes and, and I'm aware. I'm aware, you know, that that I need to be able to 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 learn to take the step back and learn to understand that this may not necessarily be owned fully by me. I must be able to cede control and know my place. And this might be something a lot of times when we are young, you know, we try to overstep the boundaries, we want control, we want to work really hard. But oftentimes than not, not ceding control doesn't allow us uh, the possibility for our ideas to come to fruition. You know, oftentimes than not, you just go in there and you try and you think that you own the space, but really? Something to think about, you know. You've got to be able to understand where you fit within the team dynamics, be able to support the partners who are more senior than yourself. Yes, you may have equity, but you need to know where you stand and how the company moves forward. You need to have adopt a team sort of mindset because in the long run, when you run together with people, you go further than if you can run by yourself. By yourself is a lot faster, and that's the truth. You know, it's some super cliche phrase, but it's something that I've realized that you really need to know where you stand, you need to know what you're really contributing, have others contributed as well. If they're contributed, they deserve their fair share. You need to be able to understand that, you know, you fit in that space and that you know that you need to be able to push and be able to support them, be able to support the company, you need to be able to push the things forward. And, you know, there's no right or wrong, right? But more often than not, for me, I always prefer the, the vehicle, the ability to do a lot more than what I would be able to do just by starting it myself. So yeah, this is something that I'd like to highlight as well as a learning lesson for both myself and you guys because if you go into a relationship thinking that it is both an equal relationship when down the line you realize that they would have disproportionate power, then you have something coming, you know? Oftentimes, we will try to, to, to scramble, try to accumulate power in this area. But look, we're really young. There's still a lot, a lot of room for us to grow. And oftentimes, the learning that you get and the experience that you get from this space will make you a lot more wiser vis-a-vis just somebody else who, you know, trying to start themselves in their small little uh, well. You know, you're the frog in the well. You don't see shit. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess we have to understand that our apprenticeship and our learning is going to take a lot longer than it seems. And it's not something where we can just directly call the shots, you know. Even founders of, of these great, fast-moving companies, people like Carousel, Facebook, Google, they've always had adult supervision, you know. First for Facebook, it was Sean Parker who came in to manage Zucks, right. Then for Google, it was Eric Schmidt 
who was the chairman of Google. And only after a certain period of time when the founders have learned the operational skills, they understand things better, then they come in to their own to run the show. And likewise, as young people, I think it's something that we all need to understand and know where we stand vis-a-vis the more experienced people. Because the truth is, there's been a lot of talk on how millennials now can lead the generation forward and whatnot. But the thing is, we lack experience and we lack the time needed to invest ourselves. So just keep hustling and keep investing. Eventually, you, for me, that's what I realized, is that eventually you reach a certain point of insight where you can uniquely contribute to a venture yourself and truly add value to, to how things go and, and not just you know follow uh, the more senior people as well. So I guess understanding where you stand is very important. On the flip side of that, of course, you cannot just you know assume that the other guy, just because the other guy is more senior than you, he gets to call the shots. That's not necessarily true as well. You also need to listen to your own voice. And it's always a balance between those two. The difficult part is being able to know when to listen and when not to listen, when to push a point and when not to. And I think a lot of this comes down to communication. You need to dare to communicate and say the hard things. You know, the hard things about the hard things, man. That's a book. (laughs) And it's true. If you don't, you'll just be in for a world of pain, as I've thought and I've realized in many of my previous ventures. I overstepped my boundaries and for many of them, I got fired or the entire relationship just got crushed, you know. So that's just me being very honest about my failures, lah. And an apology to all the different mentors, all the different project owners that I've I've pissed off or fucked up. <laughs> so yeah, I would like to thank you guys. I think this is the end for episode two.